0: I had the uh, privilege last year, it was kind of a downer year for most people, right? I had the privilege last year of celebrating my 50th spiritual birthday. And I was reminded recently that back when I was saved in 1970, there was a question that circulated among believers that really challenged me. It asked, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The more general question, of course, is how can you tell if someone has become a Christian? Is it because he prayed what some would call the sinner's prayer? Or maybe he responded to an altar call. Or maybe he was baptized by immersion. Or maybe he goes to church now, maybe even the Hope Bible Church now. Maybe he responded in tears as he realized his sin and need for the Savior. Well, these things could accompany genuine salvation, but in our text for today, Jesus illustrated that it's not necessarily that simple. Sometimes called the parable of the four soils, Jesus called it the parable of the sower. I would invite you to turn your copy of God's word to Matthew 13. Turns out this parable is one of several, seven I believe, that were found in all three of the synoptic gospels. This one appears in Mark 4 and Luke 8 as well. and It's one of just a few parables that Christ actually explained the meaning of. That's great when preaching. You see Christ's interpretation, right? And so you've got some solid ground there. Jesus told this parable somewhere in the middle of his ministry while he enjoyed fairly broad support and following. And the text here gives us some clues as to the size of that following. Both Matthew and Mark record that Jesus taught this one to multitudes, a crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So I'll read for the moment just verses 1 through 8 of Matthew 13. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty perhaps I should first ask the question, what is a parable? Well, it's a short story that uses common events or circumstances to illustrate a spiritual lesson, to put that lesson alongside the reality it illustrates. Jesus' parables sometimes begin with something like the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells the story, right? or maybe compared to. Now, there are two common dangers with a parable and <clears throat> trying to understand a parable. The first is not understanding the point it's trying to make. What is the bottom line that the parable is seeking to illustrate? And the second danger is trying to assign meaning to all the little details in the parable. Uh, That would be appropriate for an allegory, but a parable is about basically a, a, a main point. And don't get too bogged down into the details as to a subsequent or a parallel meaning. So this morning I'd like to address this parable in three main parts. First, the meaning of the parable. Secondly, the reason for the parable, and then lastly, some applications from the parable. Well, as I mentioned, Jesus gives us a leg up on the meaning of the parable, because in verses 18 through 23, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. That is, here's what it means. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not enter it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Well, we observe what I would call three main uh, participants or aspects of this parable. And there are three S words, sower, seed, and soils. The sower, of course, Jesus identifies as one who is um, uh, spreading the seed, which is the word, of God, the word of the kingdom in Matthew, uh, the word of God in Luke, and just plain the word in Mark. In other words, God's truth that He's revealing and has revealed to man, to convict us of sin, to save us from sin, and to lead us in all ungodliness. Uh, I'm sorry, to lead us into godliness, out of ungodliness. And the soil, of course, Jesus identifies as people, people to whom the word of God is proclaimed. Lots of personal pronouns are used. Uh, In one case, he's using the word, this is the man who so-and-so. Those are four people. So the picture then is of the word of God being delivered to different kinds of people who have correspondingly different responses to it both in the short term and in the long term. So let's look at the first soil. In verse 4 and verse 9, he refers to that soil that's beside the road. It's uh, part of the hard path. It's not intended for growing anything, and indeed it does not grow anything. The short-term response of this soil is that it does nothing, right? The seed doesn't penetrate the soil. Nothing happens. And there's no fruit, obviously, from the seed. The long-term result is also explained. Satan comes and snatches away the seed that has been sown. And Luke adds that Jesus explained um, The reason was so that they may not believe and be saved. Well, the meaning here, I think, is obvious. Some people are hardened to the gospel message, and they don't receive it at all. Perhaps you were that way at some point, or you know of others who have been hardened and not responsive to the gospel. Satan takes away whatever exposure they have had to the word. But you may be thinking, well, what about Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, where God said, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So maybe the question in your mind is, well, if God's word always accomplishes his purposes, why then does the person represented by this soil not receive it? Good question. I think in answering that, we need to know that It must not have been God's purpose to save that hardened soil. Certainly not at that point in time. The promise in Isaiah doesn't mean that all soil will benefit from the rain and the snow, only that some soil always does. Likewise, there's no promise here that his purpose is always salvation. There were many in Israel who did not respond to God's word, In fact, if you look at the very next chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 56, you see a very uh, stark example of that. And also in Isaiah's commissioning in chapter 6 of Isaiah, from which Jesus quotes in this passage, it involved proclaiming a message of judgment to those whose hearts were hardened. So we have to conclude that sometimes the purpose of his word is to judge those who are hardened of heart. The second soil is referred to as rocky places where they did not have much depth of soil. The picture here is of shallow soil with a a rock um, beneath, kind of bedrock beneath with very little soil above to sustain uh, growth. The short-term response there is that immediately the seeds sprang up because there was no depth of soil. This is like, I suppose, plants that are, are root-bound and uh, they, they put all the energy into the producing of foliage and not so much the fruit. And Jesus said that immediately they receive it with joy. But... Um Luke 8.13 adds that they believe it just for a little while. And uh, significantly, the word that Luke uses there in Luke 8, that word for believe, is the, the common Greek verb pisteuo, which is the same one used in verse 12 here, so that they may not believe and be saved. And it's the same word used throughout John with respect to saving faith. So it's possible that Jesus is talking about true believers here, but is he? Look at the long-term result. The sun scorched the tiny plants because they had no root and withered away. Jesus said that he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately he falls away observe that this soil bears no fruit just foliage yeah you know, foliage the leaves and stuff right so what does that mean is this a christian or not does this teach that a christian can lose his salvation well that word receives the word with joy. In verse 20 indicates that there's an outward expression of openness to the word. But verse 21 says it's temporary. And uh, the meaning there is it's, it's for a season. It's, it's not permanent. And the word has only a temporary impact on that person. Indeed, verse 21 goes on to say that person falls away. The, um, the term there in the Greek is scandalizo. You might hear the word scandal in there. It literally means caused to stumble in the passive voice. It's done to him. Like the sun is shining on him, right? He's receiving the sun's rays passively and it causes him to fall away. That term is always used metaphorically in the New Testament, not a stumbling on something physical, but stumbling on something else. And so sometimes it's used to refer to some, someone who is good stumbling and tripped up by something that is bad, For example, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 14, 27, on the Mount of Olives before his arrest, you will all fall away, scandalizo, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So in that case, there's good people who are stumbling because of a bad thing. Other times it's used to refer to someone who is bad, being tripped up by a good thing. For example, in Romans 9, verses 30 through 33, we read, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So there are hardened people who stumbled over a good thing. It's used that same way in other passages like 1 Peter 2 8 and 1 Corinthians 1 23 through 24, which says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. Given that what's tripping up the people in our parable is the sun, something that's needed by all plants, sometimes even when it comes in abnormal amounts, which Jesus calls the affliction or persecution because of the word, the use of scandalizo here in this parable seems to picture someone bad who is tripped up by something good. Clearly, those who have a deep permanent set of roots don't wither under those very same conditions. So the rocky soil then is an unbeliever. Who shows superficial temporary interest in the Word of God. And this interpretation is reinforced by the parallel passage in Luke 8:13, which says, In the time of temptation, they fall away, which basically means to become apostate. They never were believers. Likewise in 1 Timothy 4:1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, lest there should be any one of you, in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So these all carry the meaning that some unbelievers who had participated with some believers for a season will eventually separate themselves from the things of God, particularly when the going gets tough. Is there any other evidence within this parable that the rocky soil refers to unbelievers? Yes, I think so. There are some more clues in the term withered away. That term in in the Greek is the same word that we get the word Xerox from. It means uh, dry. And in the case of Xerox, it's dry toner, right, that does the photocopying. Um, Luke 8, 6 says, because it had no moisture. So these are people who have no ability to retain the life-giving moisture of the Holy Spirit to feed the plant during trials, since they are spiritually shallow and internally hardened. Other passages, in contrast, refer to those who endure such uh, circumstances. Matthew 10, for example, And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And later in Matthew chapter 24, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. But the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. Now, scripture does not teach that we are saved because we are, because we endure, but rather our enduring is a certain sign that we are saved. Until then, others will not know for sure since they can't know our heart. But God does. Recall the passage I read earlier from Matthew 7, where some people appear to others as if they're true believers, uh, but they're referred to in some cases as false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like they're a sheep, part of the, the flock, but in fact they are not. They're ravenous wolves. Others... Um, do not produce good fruit, so they must not be a good tree, Jesus said. Others say and do religious things without knowing Christ, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Others build their house on the sand. It may look just like the house next door that's built on the rock, But the difference becomes very clear when the storm hits. And on the outside, they may look like they are genuinely saved, but they're not. Each of these categories of people is pursuing a religion of works. They don't have changed hearts, they never had saving faith and will not endure persecution. So our conclusion is that the rocky soil represents unbelievers who are fundamentally hardened against the gospel. They demonstrate a temporary, shallow affinity to God's word, but have no change of heart. And they lose interest when the going gets tough. These are not Christians who lose their salvation something that's not taught in Scripture. Remember, it's the shallow soil, not the foliage that springs up and then withers, that represents these people. The people are the soil, not the foliage, right? The plants are merely the outward, temporary response to God's word. Well, that brings us to the third soil, where the seed fell among Or upon the thorns. Their short term response, again, is a a little bit of foliage, but no fruit. Uh, Luke adds that the thorns grew up with it. The long term result is clear the thorns were quite vigorous and choked out the true plant of the word. Jesus refers to those thorns as the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Mark uses the phrase, the desire for other things and pleasures. And so the result is that they choked out the seeds so that they became unfruitful. So what's that mean? Is this person a believer or an unbeliever? Well, again, let's look at some clues in the words that are used here. The seed here was sown among the thorns. The thorns were already there. The seed was sown among the thorns. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use different words there, meaning... Uh, among, unto, into um, the thorns. So the thorns didn't arrive later. They were already there. And yet those thorns came up, it says. Uh, In Mark it says grew up. The thorns were multiplying. They were growing vigorously uh, in contrast to what was happening with the true word. And so the result is that these thorns choked out the word. And that word to choke out is is a word related to drowning, uh, suffocation. The seed stopped growing and died out. That's a terminal condition. And uh, it, it makes for an interesting contrast here with a parable Jesus speaks Later in this same chapter of Matthew 13, uh, the, the wheat and the tares that they grew up all together and they're separated at the harvest. Remember that one? That's not what's happening here. Here, the good seed is choked out completely and dries up. Our conclusion then is that some people bear no fruit from the word because they're devoted instead to worldly cares. Uh, They don't bear fruit of repentance because they've never repented. The thorny soil does not represent Christians either. Well, it might be helpful to compare and contrast the, the, the rocky soil and the thorny soil to get some extra insight here. Both of them heard the word and responded to it incompletely. Both eventually lost any interest in the word and neither produced any fruit of salvation. But they begin to differ a little bit in that the rocky soils succumb to external persecution, the sun, and the thorny soils succumb to internal desires that are already there. For the rocky soil, the key problem is not visible. It's a shallowness below the surface in his heart. Whereas the key problem for the thorny soil was visible. Those thorns were choking out the good seed. The rocky soil responded quickly to the word, though superficially. The thorny soil had a slow response to the word and it was choked out. Because of that, the rocky soil had a quick end, and the thorny soil had a slow end. So they are similar, but also very different. Well, the good news is, there's a fourth soil. The good soil, as it's referred to here. And the short response is that This person understands the word and accepts it. Luke describes it this way. He hears the word in an honest and good heart and holds it fast. What's the long-term result for this soil? He bears a crop of fruit and multiplies many fold. So the meaning here is also clear. The word takes root in these people because their heart is right. True believers always bear good fruit, but some perhaps more than others. There may be some good reasons for that variety of fruitfulness, but that doesn't appear to be Jesus' focus here in this parable. So Jesus explained that there are six possible responses To the word of God. Three of them were bad, three of them good. And these responses clearly depend on the condition of the people's hearts when they hear the word. In the parable, the sower was the same. The seed was the same. The environmental conditions and circumstances were all the same. All that was different was the soil. So that brings us to our second point. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, if you look back in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, On that day, well, on what day? What was going on? Well, to know the context, we have to go back to chapter 12, where in verses 12, uh, 22 through 32, we see that those who deny the work of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. And in verses 33 through 37, we see that you'll know what's inside a person by seeing the fruit produced by that person. In verses 38 through 45 of chapter 12, Jesus calls many, at least in his hearing, an evil and adulterous generation because they asked him for a sign rather than repenting, as even the pagans did who recognized God's word and work through Jonah and Solomon. And then in verses 46 through 50, while he was still speaking to the crowds, it says, his mother and brothers came to see him and Jesus said, whoever does my will or does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So then we see in verse, in, in chapter 13, then he went down out of the house, down to the seashore, to the Sea of Galilee, where the crowds followed him. He was already speaking with them, but now they follow him down to the Sea of Galilee. You can see what was on Jesus' mind here, right? Jesus knew the crowds to whom he spoke contained some of each kind of soil. The religious leaders were outwardly pious, but inwardly hardened. The hard path. They were not responding at all to the word. Some followed out of excitement about the miracles and the crowds and so on. They were probably the rocky soil who had very shallow depth and impure motives. Others were undoubtedly attracted to Christ's teaching, maybe just intellectually, maybe out of guilt, who knows, but were ultimately swayed by the worldly desires that were already in their hearts. The thorny soil. But some like his disciples, had teachable and open hearts and wanted to understand and apply Christ's teaching. They are the good soil. So to this crowd, probably containing all four types of people, Jesus said that the true family of God includes only those who do God's will. And he presented them this parable about themselves. Conveying his concern that most of them were a part of this throng for the wrong reasons. And they were not ready to receive his word. But he did so in a way that communicated mostly to those who were the good soil. Sure, some of the seed would inevitably fall on the other three kinds of soil that day. But like any sower, his main purpose was to sow seed on the good soil. Jesus knew men's hearts; and he knew perfectly well whose hearts were prepared for his message. But why speak so indirectly through a parable instead of speaking plainly and letting the chips fall where they may? Well, Jesus provided here two main reasons. First, because the good soil can understand it, and the other soils cannot. So after giving the, the actual parable in verses 9 through 13, he explains, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you, that is, the good soil prepared by the farmer, It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you wouldn't have understood these things unless the father had prepared you. But to them, Jesus says, that is the other three soils who were not prepared by the farmer, at least not yet. It has not been granted. For whoever has to him shall more be given and he shall have an abundance Maybe a reference here to the good soil multiplying the word. But whoever does not have, Jesus said, even what he has shall be taken away from him because it is either choked out by the worldly desires like thorns or withered by the heat of persecution like the rocky soil or just snatched up by Satan like the hard path. Therefore, Jesus continued, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In the parallel passage in Mark 4, Mark says, and with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And earlier in Matthew, in chapter 11, Jesus prayed, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So God sovereignly prepares people for the word like the farmer prepares the soil for the seed. Moreover, he sovereignly gives the word to those he has prepared to receive it. Jesus spoke in parables to illustrate the truth that to those who are ready to receive it, um, he gave the meaning while at the same time hiding the truth from those who were not yet able to receive it. Acts 13, uh, 45 through 46 says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary That the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. A second reason that Jesus gives for his explaining these things by way of parable is to sovereignly show the depravity and hopelessness of those whom the Father has not prepared in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And so uh, he continues in Matthew 13, starting in verse 14. And in their case, the prophecy of, of Isaiah, and this is Isaiah 6, 8 through 13, is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, And with their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus said, because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So this passage that he quotes from Isaiah is quoted five times in the New Testament, three times here in the Synoptic Gospels with this parable, but it's also quoted in John 12, 37 to 39, in which uh, says about Jesus, but though he had performed so many signs before them, Yet they were not believing in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And it quotes this passage from Isaiah 6. And then it wraps it up by saying, for this cause, they could not believe. It's not just that they would not, but they could not believe. So the point is that God has known and decreed all along that many will not receive his word. And his message to them is one of judgment. So Jesus spoke in parables to show the depravity of their unbelieving hearts. What are some applications of this parable? How does it apply to us? Well, the general lesson here is that um, it brings out the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God sovereignly prepares the soil. In our case, it's the heart that he's preparing, right? And he sows the word. Sometimes he uses us to uh, distribute that word. But we have a responsibility to apply the word, to respond to it rightly. In our evangelism, for example, observe that the same seed was sown on each soil. There wasn't a different seed for each type of soil. In fact, as with the sower in this parable, Jesus often deliberately directed his message to those who would believe and obey, not to those who were excited or attracted just for the moment. But what do we see increasingly among so-called evangelicals today? Preaching a less offensive message among Uh, so-called seekers so as to get any kind of immediate or superficial response even though they're really rocky or thorny soil who remain unsaved. Jesus is the one who came to seek and to save the lost and he's not seeking rocky or thorny soil. In our evangelism, we need to use clear but in-depth presentations of the gospel rather than just a positive message designed to get a superficial response. All too often, the gospel gospel that's proclaimed from pulpits and in evangelistic tracts and in personal witnessing opportunities goes something like this. Jesus loved you and died for you. If you ask him into your heart, he will forgive all your sins and give you eternal life. Brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. Millions of people respond to that message with a false assurance of eternal life. They're among the majority of people who take the broad way to enter the wide gate, which Jesus said leads to destruction. And they will say to him, Lord, Lord. And he will say, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They're building their house on the sand of their own righteousness, their own wisdom and will, rather than on the rock of Jesus Christ. They gladly approach Jesus as Savior, thinking that they have received an eternal life insurance policy, but they have no interest in surrendering to him as Lord, Master, and King. Listen, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which was proclaimed boldly by our Lord and his apostles, is a free gift, which we always, which we receive by faith alone. That's true. But true saving faith always expresses itself through humble repentance from sin that is, forsaking the sin and surrendering to Jesus Christ as Lord and Master and bearing fruit of a life transformed by God. Any gospel that does not communicate God's command to repent and forsake sin is a false gospel. Matthew 4, 17 records that at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at the end of his ministry, between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, Luke 24 records that Jesus told his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's the same message that Peter preached in Acts 2 and Acts 3. Likewise, Paul preached that same thing on Mars Hill in Acts 17. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, turn away from, forsake their sin. So a third lesson here is that true repentance bears fruit. As with the fourth soil, God's word will multiply in us in two ways to bring fruit from the word that's been sown. One would be increasing godliness. The spirit works in each true believer to generate godliness in that person's life. And secondly, the fruit would show up as expanded outreach to other people. In John 15, Jesus uh, verses 8 through 20, Jesus said, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be to my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. True spiritual fruit has an eternal impact. Mere foliage does not. If you're trying to live the Christian life, trying to be godly, participating in church ministries in your own strength and wisdom for your own glory or your own interests, at best you'll produce foliage that will fade away. And our Lord will not be impressed. Also, by way of application, parents, you should certainly be teaching and preaching and living out the gospel before your children, praying that they will respond to Christ in faith, genuine repentance. But don't force them to say a sinner's prayer, particularly when they're too young to understand. It's not those words that are magic, right? It's a changed heart that bears fruit. Don't interpret temporary foliage in their little lives as remaining fruit. That is, look for evidence of true repentance, a hunger for God's word, and a heart that wants to please God. Don't give them a false assurance of salvation. Wait until they bear fruit that can't be explained except by God's intervention. In their hearts. Likewise, don't push them to get baptized or to participate in the Lord's Supper until it's clear both to you and to them that they're bearing fruit of salvation, of genuine repentance. Perhaps some of you, like millions of others, are going through life thinking that you're saved because you demonstrated some foliage early in your life. And you were told that meant you're saved. But don't maintain that delusion any longer. Are you a true Christian? A possessor of eternal life in Christ? If you're not multiplying spiritual fruit that remains, you're either hardened against the truth or you have only a superficial interest in it or you allow other things in your heart to take priority. Either way, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a child of God. You may be preparing to say to Jesus, Lord, didn't I do such and such for you? But he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If that's you, Jesus calls you to repent from your sin and to trust completely and solely in him for your righteousness and salvation. He has defeated sin and death by his own death and resurrection, but you must call on him in genuine faith and repentance to receive the free gift of salvation. If you do, He will produce godly remaining fruit in your life that will prove that you are his disciple. If you've never repented from sin and placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, and if you've never really surrendered to him as the only Lord and master in your life, I urge you to do that now as we close in prayer. If you do, Or if you're unsure about your salvation, I would also invite you to come up and speak with me or one of the other leaders after the service is over, which will close in a few minutes after we have the baptismal service. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our Savior, but also we know that he is our Lord, our Master, our King. We pray that if there is anyone here today who uh, came into this worship service not being a genuine believer, that Lord, you would have uh, softened their heart this hour, drawn them to yourself in faith and repentance for your glory.